recovery from depression involves the discovery that you're actually wrong about something. And it's one of the greatest experiences in your life. We all want to change our lives. By changing our thoughts, we can change our feelings, change our actions, and actually do just that. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Join me tonight with my interview with Dr. David Burns, legendary psychiatrist and the gentleman that popularized cognitive behavioral therapy. David helps us understand the different components to how we can do just this. We explore the different areas of how we can make this phenomenal and lasting change in our lives by becoming aware of what we're thinking and how that thinking is creating our reality. I'm here joined in the studio with wonderful Dr. David Burns, adjunct professor emeritus in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine and author of best-selling books, Feeling Good and the Feeling Good Handbook. And some of my favorite books, Feeling Good Together and When Panic Attacks. Uh, Thank you for that, those kind comments. And you know, a lot of people think I am a psychologist. I wrote an article for Psychology Today when I was trying to get publicity when Feeling Good first came out because I, I couldn't get anybody to have any interest in the book. And I, I finally got an article in Psychology Today called The Perfectionist's Script for Self-Defeat because I had a chapter on that in, in my book. And uh, they described me as a psychologist. And it was, it was so interesting. But, you know, I started out with a psychiatric band after my residency, prescribing drugs and doing research on this chemical imbalance theory, and then shifted 180 degrees in the, in the direction of, of psychotherapy. And, and I'm really glad that I made that, that switch. I'm curious, what inspired you to make that switch? It was pretty simple. Uh, part of it was critical thinking that I'd learned in college to, you know, to question things. And part of it was my clinical experience. The, this idea at the time when I finished my residency at Penn, and today it's still promoted, but this theory that depression is due to this deficiency of brain serotonin. The the theory never made much sense to me, but I, I was doing research on it at Penn. And I actually won one of the top awards in the world for research on, on brain chemistry when I was, was a, a resident. But our research indicated that depression could not possibly be due to a deficiency of brain serotonin. And I didn't want to spend my career doing research on something that, that I felt in my heart of hearts was not not a valid theory, that that was not the true cause of depression. And then in addition, we, we had a depression research unit at the VA hospital, and I was treating large numbers of patients with antidepressants and all kinds of other drugs as well. And I rarely saw patients go from depression to, to joy. I had the occasional patient who would get a little bit better, uh, some, a few who got a lot better, but most of them were hardly improving at all. And I just knew that something was rotten in Denmark. I, I would go to 
American Psychiatric Association conferences, and there would be some drug company symposium on the treatment of depression. There would be a thousand psychiatrists in the audience. They'd be giving out free gourmet food, free continuing education credits, and they'd be talking about how this or that antidepressant cured 85% of people with depression. And I, I was thinking, well, why don't those patients ever come to me? I, 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 I'm not seeing anywhere near that 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 level of, of, of success, and you know it, it just boggled my mind and kind of angered me really. And um, and then I heard about Aaron Beck's new approach that sounded so dopey at first: cognitive therapy. Your thoughts create depression, and when you're depressed, you have all these negative thoughts: "I'm no good," "I'm worthless," "I'll never get better." And the idea was you can train patients to change the way they think and it would change the way they feel. And I thought that is sounds so dopey, that couldn't be true. And so I decided to start going to his weekly conference. There were only at the time maybe five or 10 at most cognitive therapists in the world. And we were pretty much all in the same room learning this, this new model. And I tried it with some of my most severe patients and I was, it blew my mind because they suddenly started recovering and they said they wanted more. I just got so excited and I sent, I had a five-year grant from the federal government to de- develop a, you know, brain chemistry research laboratory at the medical school looking at this brain serotonin metabolism. And I, I, I said, I'm going to just send that money back. I don't want the money. I don't want to spend my life doing this. And I, I gave up my faculty position and, and went into private practice so I could really develop cognitive therapy and learn how to do it and, and advance it. I stayed on the voluntary faculty at Penn, so I continued to teach without page so I could continue to do research and work with the residents. But it was a fantastic decision that really, really changed my life, and I'm, I'm just so happy that I was able to make that that change. And now with my group at Stanford, we've developed an even more powerful approach than cognitive therapy. It it maintains a lot of the good stuff of cognitive therapy, but adds new powerful dimensions. We call it team therapy. And it's it's even way more powerful than than the original cognitive therapy was. And so it's it's excited. I, I I've been, although I'm retired, I treat many people every week for free as part of my 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 training, my teaching. And just last night, I was training some of the psychiatric residents, and one of them uh, was very, very depressed about her personal life. And you know, a lot of us, we we when we're growing up, we we get rejected by someone, we feel alone and lonely, and like we're unlovable. And we worked that through, and it was just absolutely mind-boggling she just went from depression to joy and euphoria and it and it's just like participating in a miracle and then in my tuesday group i have a free training group for community therapists at stanford and and we do personal work there too and one of the uh community therapist was very despondent about a conflict with her husband and as we worked through it she completely turned the whole thing around and she went from just sobbing to to laughter, and and it was just it was it was just bog. It's mind-boggling to me to have. Uh, I I didn't believe techniques, therapy methods this powerful could even exist. If you'd said it ten years ago, I would have said you're nuts. But 
it, it's been really kind of almost like a miracle or, or, or something. The, the therapy techniques have evolved so, so rapidly. Although most people aren't aware of these new techniques, most therapists aren't yet aware of them either. Well, how powerful to witness that transformation in someone. It, it's just, it's addictive. It's what I it's what I live live for. I also take uh, have free uh, Sunday hikes, uh, and anyone in, in my training groups can come. They just show up at my house Sunday morning at nine or eight thirty when the weather gets hot, and we go out and hike for about four hours on on I'd say moderately severe trails, not not super severe, but you know steep up and steep down. And we do personal work along the way. And so I get to work with maybe two or three or four people on a Sunday hike. And again, they pop like popcorn. They go, they come. The other week we had a woman came on the hike, very talented and lovely woman, of a, a psychiatrist, a brilliant woman. But she'd had some altercation with her ex and with one of her sons. And she was telling herself, I'm a bad mother. And at the start of the hike, she was sobbing. And by the end of the hike, she was just laughing uncontrollably, and, and her, it was like sheer, sheer joy. And I have kind of a Buddhist philosophy in a quasi-amateurish way because I really don't know anything about Buddhism, but that we're all one. And so what happens is, is when you help a patient go in, into a state of elation from severe depression or severe anxiety – it happens to you at the same time. Absolutely. And so it's, I just feel blessed to be in this profession. Well, and I but when I, when in the early days, when I was a psychiatric resident, I, I virtually never saw that. It's, yeah. Yeah. What an amazing contrast between those yeah. two. And, you know, I think that you've also touched on one of the myths that people think therapists have it all together, that they've never had a problem or that, you know, that's, they're supposed to be, quote unquote, perfect people. And, of course, I find the best therapists are the ones that, of course, they're human. So they have real issues. They can be at that very deep place of empathy in connection with other people because they've gone through real challenges and, and heartache. And that they can, you know, the best therapists have done their own work. A absolutely. And I, to me, that's mandatory in the training that I offer to do to do the personal work. And the nights when we do the personal work, it just it brings the training to a whole a whole other level. And then when you have a patient, you, you can say they, they're talking about their anxiety disorders or their severe depression or their relationship problem, whatever it happens to be, you can say, you know, I've been there myself and I know how awful that is, what you're experiencing. And, and it, it's going to be such a joy to show you the way out of the woods because I, I think we can we can turn this around fast. And that's a message that patients, patients want to hear. But it's hard for some therapists to hear that. Sometimes I haven't handled my teaching with the Stanford psychiatric residents properly and I've gotten them angry at me, which I think I've finally learned how to not do that. But they, when I used to tell them, you know, we have new approaches and, and I, I often can almost always see complete recovery in someone with even decades of severe depression. I can see it all pretty much more than 90% of the time 
in less than two hours of treatment, they they would they got angry with me because they thought I was a con artist. They're, what they're taught is so different that uh, depression takes years to build up and it takes years of slow therapy to you know kind of chip away at it little by little to hope for even even uh, partial partial improvement. Uh, but but the new techniques really I think do represent a. Uh, a, 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 a breakthrough, and now I, I try not to sell it t so hard to, to them. I try to teach with more modesty and humility, and that's a, you know about a thousand times more effective. So I'm curious about this new team technique that you're talking about because back in the, the for me the olden days. So this is back in 1993 is when I went to graduate school at the University of Denver. And my focus was cognitive behavioral therapy because of your influence, actually. So you've, you've actually really impacted my life in, a, in many, many ways. Um, I find that I use cognitive behavioral therapy daily in my practice. But before we go on and, and talk a little bit more about team, for those people that are listeners that aren't familiar with what cognitive behavioral therapy is, how would you define that? Well, it's three things, and they go back really at least 2,000 years to the time of Epictetus and probably 2,500 years to the time of the Buddha. But it, the, the first idea, which is hard for people to grasp because it is so basic, is that the events of your life could never have any emotional impact on you and other people could never make you feel happy or unhappy. The only thing that can influence your emotions is your thoughts. All of your thoughts are created, all of your emotions at every moment of every day result entirely from your thoughts. And Epictetus put it in his book, uh, it's called the Enchiridion, something like that, I believe. He said, people are disturbed not by things, but, but by the views we, we, we take of them. That, that's point num number one. And that's happening to listeners right at this moment. Your, your thoughts are creating how you feel. Like you may be feeling various ways about this interview. Like you, you could be feeling angry right now and annoyed then what would your thought be? Well, your thought might be something like, oh, this Burns guy sounds like a con artist. You can't possibly cure depression in you know, less than two hours, and he's gotta be some kind of a fraud. Or, or you might be thinking, oh, he sounds so narcissistic and so big on himself, What he's kind of an ass or something like that. Or you, you could be feeling right now hopeless and, and depressed thinking, oh, this sounds too good to be true. It probably couldn't work for me. I, I'm really a worthless human being. I'm, I really am inferior. Uh, or you could be feeling joy and uh, saying, oh, wow, this sounds terrific. I didn't know there were new techniques more powerful even than antidepressants. This is great. I've got to grab his book, Feeling Good, and, and, and learn more about this. And so it's your thoughts, do you see right now, that, that are causing you to feel the, the way you do. The second principle, and that's Aaron Beck, was probably the one who came up with this, I would say, for the most part, although Albert Ellis, the New York noted, notorious New York psychologist, who was a little ahead of Beck, actually, but he, he, he was saying similar things, that the negative thoughts that upset us are fraudulent. They're distorted. They're not true. Depression and anxiety are the world's oldest cons. 
And there's 10 thinking patterns or cognitive distortions that I've, I listed, I've listed in all of my books. And you'll recognize yourself in these thinking patterns like all or nothing thinking. If I'm not a big success, I'm a total failure. Like, like you could be thinking about today's show and then I could be thinking about some screw up I made or some error I made and think, oh, that was, I shouldn't have done that. I'm all, that I screwed things up totally. That would be black and, and white thinking. This show isn't going to be 100% and it's not going to be 0%. Everything is, is somewhere in between. Or overgeneralization, you generalize from a negative event to this never-ending pattern of defeat. For example, uh, I saw a woman recently who had been uh, re rejected uh, by her boyfriend, and then she, she had the thought that this shows there, there must be something wrong with me, or he wouldn't have rejected me, and, and I won't be able to change fast enough, and I'll, I'll, I'll be alone forever. Uh, and, and she really believed that. And it caused, you know, tremendous pain. And then you've got should statements. I, I shouldn't be so screwed up. I, I, I should be more smarter than I am. I should be better than I am. I, I sh uh, you know, and you've got labeling. Uh, are you getting a message there that I might, I'm talking too much or something? Or? No, no, no. I'm, I'm making uh, sure that our levels are okay. <laughs> oh, okay. You're, See, you're, that's you're mind wonderful. reading. That's another distortion. You just, yeah, you just I, I thought, oh, gosh, she's looking off to her right. She's probably looking at the producer saying, like, sh tell Burns to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's how it works. We get these distortions. I love that. Perfect and, example. And anyway, so you got self-blame, emotional reasoning, should statements, magnification, mental filtering. And then the, the third idea, the final and most important idea, is when you change the way you think, you, you can change the way you feel. Well, and I think what's powerful about that, too, is that even as it's happening, if you can become familiar with those cognitive distortions, what I found is really wonderful is you can catch them right after they occur. Yeah. And so uh, an example that I give is I used to live in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and it's it's notorious for being extremely windy there. There is never a good hair day. And so if I look out the window and it's super windy before I go to work and I say to myself, oh, this day is going to be rotten. If I just let that go, I'm going to start feeling down. I'm going to start feeling negative. And if I can catch that I just did that, and that was an overgeneralization, and I was doing, you know, I was actually doing well, some fortune, fortune telling. telling. Yeah, yeah, fortune telling. Um, then I can say, oh my gosh, I'm doing that fortune telling again. And you know what? Even though it's windy, I'm really lucky because the air here is really clean, and I work inside. Yeah. And all of a sudden I've changed that thought, and actually then I kind of can move into maybe a place of gratitude. Yeah, it right. Which is a whole experience. Yeah, right. Absolutely. But it's hard for people to grasp at first because those thoughts, the negative thoughts, Beck called them automatic thoughts because they come into our mind automatically and they seem so true that we don't know that we're fooling ourselves. Like one of the distortions I've called emotional reasoning, uh, that, that's where you reason from how you feel. And so you may be thinking, gosh, I feel hopeless, and, and almost all depressed patients feel hopeless, that means I, I'll never get better. Mm -hmm. You see, I feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can feel the hopelessness, so you think it's true. You think it's real. Or you can feel like a loser, so, so you conclude you really are inferior, or you really are defective, or you really are a, a, worthless, a, a worthless human being. And 
recovery from depression involves the discovery that you're actually wrong about something. And it's one of the greatest experiences in your life. In fact, it's it's one of four forms of enlightenment. The Buddha talked about the great death or enlightenment, and there's actually four great deaths. One is involved in, in recovery from depression. One is involved in recovery from anxiety disorders. One is involved in recovery from relationship conflicts. And one is involved in recovery from habits and addictions. When you recover from depression and anxiety disorder or, or, or develop a loving relationship when, when you had a hostile, conflicted one or you overcome an addiction, there, there's, there's a kind of spiritual process uh, or death of the ego, four different deaths of the, of the ego in each, type, in each type of recovery. Like in recovery from depression, you see, it's a euphoric thing that happens, but at the same time, you have to accept the fact that you are very flawed, that you're not that you're not special. A lot of depression comes from this idea that we 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 think we're not good enough, so we're beating up. I'm no good. I shouldn't have screwed up. What's wrong with me? You're just beating up on yourself all the time because you have this picture of how you think you should be, and then the way you are, and they're different, and so you start pounding on yourself thinking somehow you can turn yourself in, into this superhuman human being. And, you know, it's, you can call it narcissism or perfectionism, but it's, it's present in, in most depression. In fact, all depression, there's something you think you have to have that you don't have to, to, to be worthwhile or, or, or to be special. When I, when I was starting out in clinical practice, I, I had the same tendency myself uh, to base my, my self-esteem on my achievements. And I used to think, boy, I'm, I'm going to be the greatest therapist in the world. And that made me high to think that. And then when I'd have a patient recovery, I think, oh yeah, I'm so awesome. But when patients said to me, you're not helping me, it was such a threat to me. Mm-hmm. It was very deeply disturbing to me. And then I'd often get into a kind of power struggle with, with the patient, trying to prove to them that I could help them. And then after doing this for a number of years, I finally learned to say, when a patient said, you're not helping me, to say, you know, you're right, I haven't been helpful to you. and. It's painful for me too, and I can imagine how discouraged you feel, how angry with me. I feel like I haven't connected with you on a deep, deep level, and certainly your depression scores aren't changing. Let, let, let's talk about it. I want to hear how you've been feeling. I want to hear what you have to say. And then when I surrendered my ego like that, suddenly the patients opened up. And by becoming powerless, I became far more powerful and, and, and effective. But so it's a it's a deep kind of spiritual method me- message, and we have to sometimes learn that message over and over again because once you're enlightened, which is the same as saying euphoric and free of depression, then you drift in and out of enlightenment. No one's unhappy entitled to be happy seven days a week. We all get upset, so you have to first learn how to overcome your depression in the here and now, I call that feeling better. And then you, you want to learn relapse prevention training. So whenever you fall into the black hole in the future, you, you have a little ladder so you can climb back out of it really fast.
next time on The Spark. Relationships are difficult. Everybody knows that. Most people think it's because of money, sex, kids, work, or who picks up the socks. Some people think it's because we're just not right for each other or we don't have enough in common. Look, it's not just you or him or her. There's actually nothing more difficult on the planet than another person. We talk with author, clinician, and teacher, Dr. Stan Tatkin, who has specialized for over 15 years in working with individuals and couples about what makes relationships work and work better. Next time on The Spark. The Spark is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer, including titles that have been featured on this very program, such as Molly's Game by Molly Bloom and The Abundance Effect by Justin Morales. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners of The Spark, which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at thesparkpod.com audible. For you, it sounds like I mean, the death of the ego for you um, and, and for a lot of people when you're talking about that needing to be special and needing to be, you know, the expert or the, you know. Yeah. Um, that, that once we can attain that and change our thoughts around that and let go of that, that's, yeah. that's where this euphoria comes from. But it's not yeah. going to be 24-7 and it's unrealistic to right. think. I've heard, too, in, when people are practicing meditation or mindfulness, they say, you know, the goal is really about peace. It's not happiness. Yeah. You know how the Buddha became enlightened? Sitting under the tree of... Yeah, but you know uh, what happened sitting under the tree? What? Well, he was on the verge of death, and he'd been doing all these extreme things, trying trying to find enlightenment, and he'd been meditating, and nothing happened, and he'd been fasting, and he was down to something like 57 pounds or something, and trying to eat one grain of rice a day or some severe thing, and it was all BS. Meditation is BS. Fasting is BS. It's just a lot of junk that he'd been taught that was going to lead you to enlightenment. And he was almost dead. And some woman was walking past and saw this poor guy, you know, just skin and bone. So she brought him a dish of uh, sweet rice pudding. And he, he grabbed it and he said, oh, shit, I'm not sure how to say <laughs> that on your radio that. show. <laughs> and he said, I'm just going to eat this effing pudding. And he ate it. He felt so good that he got enlightenment. It was when he finally started violating the rules <laughs> and stopped trying to be so great. And then, then he got his enlightenment. I love uh, that. Isn't that neat? I love that story. Enlightenment through pudding. I think that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, but- that's the way it is the rest of us, too. And I've learned it a lot from, from cats. I used to be a dog person. I hated cats because they're so narcissistic and they threatened my own narcissism. So I resented them. But my wife converted me after our, our beloved Samoya died uh, about the age 14 a number of years ago. And so we started adopting feral cats that would, you know, pop into our yard, and uh, and we we turned them some of them from violent 
paranoid creatures into sweet, mm-hmm. loving, our best became my best friends in the world, some of the cats we, we've had. And they've really, but they've not, none of them are special. You know, they're not purebreds. They're, they're just like what we called alley cats when I was growing up in Denver. They'd be in the in, in the alleys and they'd eat the garbage and they were wild. And and they, they were like that. And, and a lot of them had, uh, you know, scars from fights they'd been in. And when they came to us, they had fleas and worms and all kinds of stuff like that. And they were never special, but they just loved me and I, I loved them. And and when we were together, you know, this is one that we, I, I lost about a year and a half ago. He he went out hunting Obi in the middle of the night and never came back. We'd had him for about eight years. Mm. And uh, he had become my best friend in the world. And But when we were together, just the heavens opened up. You know, you talk about gratitude. It was like joy beyond anything you can describe. And and yet he's just a ordinary feral cat with no nothing special about him, and I'm just kind of an old fat fart now. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I used to run. I still run. I I used to be a pretty average runner. I could do you know easy eight minute miles, sometimes a seven or almost a six minute mile. And I was out running the other day, and this fellow came by on a bicycle. And I guess I know him or something. You say, oh, good to see you out here walking, doctor. And I wanted to kill him. I was running. I was jogging. <laughs> and then I went back to the house and the mailman came to the door. And he handed me the mail. He says, oh, doctor, good for you. I saw you out there walking. <laughs> I'm not walking. I'm still fast. And then the next day I went out and this elderly wobbly woman with a cane went zooming past me when I was jogging. So I'm just – average is way up above where I'm at now. But uh, Obi didn't care. My cats don't don't care. You know, you know it's just we're, we're not special. And but, but life is so special. Like, like what you were saying, like the thing that happens to you when you see it's a wind, windy day – uh, well, it's not a special day, but boy, it is a special day. Did you ever read that play, Our Town, in high school? I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I, I'm not remembering. I mean, the, the title sounds familiar, but I don't remember the play. Well, it's like the theme that you've been talking about. It, it was, It's kind of corny, but it really hit my heartstrings. It's about this this girl, teenager, who dies, and then she comes into the afterlife and there's some people there and they tell her that there's this uh, thing that you didn't know about when you're alive, but after you're dead, you're allowed to come back to life for one more day. And you can select any day of your life that, that, you, that you want. So she's saying, oh, I've got to select the most special day. So she chose her high school graduation or something like that. And then they said, oh, no, no, you, you can't choose a special day because that will be too overwhelming for you. Even an average day is going to be overwhelming for you. Just choose some day when nothing important happened. So she chooses this day and then she comes back to life and suddenly she notices what she didn't notice when she was alive. The, you know, the sun coming up and babies being born and people loving each other and, and you know, the joy of communicating with, with a friend. Just li- little things. It's just kind of a really neat 
story, but again, it's about uh, like the the idea that you don't come to life until you've died. The death, see, mm. the death of the self. What that story's about. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that just occurred to me now. I didn't realize that until just now. But 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 yes, and that. But but it's so sad that we. It's the Garden of Eden story too that we take. We have the capacity to live in, in this fantastic life with joy with loved ones. And yet we tear ourselves apart with these distorted messages that that aren't aren't really true. And it's 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 a scientific puzzle, but it's also kind of a spiritual puzzle as well. Well, that heaven and hell actually exist in between yeah. our ears. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and That's so other- going back to a little bit of how we can untwist our thinking, because so much of our negative thinking and when people are depressed or people are anxious, any of us really, you know, we're such habitual thinkers. And that's yeah. what continues to reinforce these negative thoughts. And then we really start to believe them and see them yeah, as right. ourselves. Well, one thing that appealed to me a lot about cognitive therapy and that I wrote a lot about in my, my books like Feeling Good and the Feeling Good Handbook is that there are specific techniques you can learn to, to implement, to, to turn the, the, this negative thinking around. And I, I can give you quick examples of a couple of them. But the other thing we haven't even been talking about is this new team therapy that we've got at Stanford. Not only do we have powerful techniques to, to crush these negative thoughts that cause depression and panic attacks and troubled relationships and, and things like that, but we now also have developed new techniques that reduce what Freud called therapeutic re- resistance. Because a lot of of times people have like one foot in the water and and one foot on the shore. They they partially want to change, but they also fight against the the therapist and themselves, kind of clinging to to the distorted negative thoughts or clinging to the the anxiety or or clinging to a really hostile, uh, troubled troubled relationship. And and so uh, I've developed about 15 resistance busting techniques, although it's busting isn't a good word because we more kind of uh, make love to the resistance to, to make it disappear. Actually, we honor the, the, the patient's resistance, but that's why we get this ultra fast re- recovery. When, when I was doing cognitive therapy, it was typically 10 or 12 sessions to get to complete recovery, sometimes longer, sometimes quicker, but that would have been an average. Now with these I, I do this anti-resistance stuff. Uh, we call it paradoxical agenda setting, and it, that it takes about 20 minutes uh, out of a session, and then the patient becomes so hungry for recovery, generally 10 or 15 more minutes, and you go to complete recovery. To give a commercial, which I'm not supposed to do, but some of the listeners, you know, might have an interest in visiting my website. I know you're, they have your show, which is just fantastic, but it's uh, feelinggood.com, www.feelinggood.com. And there I've got my Feeling Good podcasts and Feeling Good blogs and it talks all about this new TEAM, team, team therapy. We you, they can you can actually hear live therapy sessions now on my on my website. There's one with a woman, Marilyn, uh, to talk about do our thoughts create depression? You see, she came for a session and she had just been diagnosed with a term uh, for stage four lung cancer, mm. and she'd never smoked, and so it was a tremendous shock to her. And she came in with the most severe depression, anxiety, and rage a human being can experience. 
And yet in a single session, by changing her thinking pattern, her depression completely completely vanished. And then there's a, a one with a wonderful fellow, Mark, a physician, who was convinced he was a failure as a father. And then I did one just about two weeks ago with a, a beautiful and brilliant young woman, Daisy, who had a pretty, pretty rough childhood and uh, has recently been having difficulties conceiving a baby and then was 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 very self critical uh, of herself because of because of that and again you can see her being transformed from severe depression and sadness and despair and hopelessness to just uh, tremendous joy in in a single therapy session there are extended sessions the session has to be about i need about 2 hours with someone to generally to complete a course of, of of therapy but in the early days when i just had cognitive therapy i i almost i almost never saw saw that like one of the techniques one of the cognitive techniques just to give listeners a quick example of how it works is called the double standard technique i have i've developed 50 or 100 of these techniques and if one doesn't work for you then you try another and another we, we can always find the technique that works for somebody but for example the woman i was mentioning who had boyfriend rejected her and then thinking uh well, uh, this shows that I'm defective and there's something wrong with me and it's all my fault and I'll never grow or change fast enough. I'll, I'll probably be alone forever. But what a sad thing and, and, and what a beautiful person she was, a beautiful woman with just so much spark and so much going for her. It was really heartbreaking to, to see her thinking like this but I think most of us have thought like that when we were rejected and growing up at some point along the, along the way and that uh, one of the techniques that was really helpful for her although it wasn't the one that really blew her mind but it, it, it was helpful was would 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 you talk to a dear friend like this what would you say to another woman who who looked a lot like you and was had a career a lot like yours and 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 she tells you gee my boyfriend just uh, just rejected me and and I'm I'm thinking that I must be defective and and it's all my fault and, and there must be something wrong with me and you know would would you say that to her and 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 why or or why not and it's based on the idea that a lot of us have this double standard when when we screw up or something bad happens to us, we rip ourselves to shreds. And yet if a loved one or a friend had the exact same problem, we would be so warm and, and compassionate toward, toward them and, and much more realistic. And, and then the question is, would you be willing to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a dear friend? Uh, that's called the double standard technique, paradoxical double standard technique. And so you have them verbalize that out loud? I, I, I play the role. I say, let, let me be your friend. Okay. And let me tell you, I, this, this happened to me. What, what do you think about me? Do you think I'm defective? Do you think it's all my fault? Do you, you think I'm going to be alone, alone forever? And then generally the person 
comes out with very compassionate, loving messages. And then I kind of cross-examine examine them and say, is this true what you're telling me? It sounds good, but maybe you're just blowing smoke in my face until I get the patient to absolutely dis disprove the thoughts. There's a great example of that on my website, and I would send you a copy of this if you wanted. I'm marketing a video. I just, we made uh, videos about six years ago, and I didn't couldn't get my hands on them. And I recently was able to buy 600 of remaining stock. It's called uh, Overcoming Toxic Shame, and it's a commercially produced video of a session with a woman profoundly ashamed of the fact that she's in her third marriage, and she's a specialist in couples therapy, and she's been hiding this from mm. from, from every everyone. And it's 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 really. It's it, it's really blow away, and on that video, if anyone wants it, you can order on my website. And I'm being commercial here, so I have to stop. Yeah. But I'm selling it deeply discounted. But I'll sell send you one for free if you'd like one to to, to see it because we had two television camera people like with commercial cameras, and it's just a beautiful session. And you can see one of my colleagues, Angela Crum, using the double standard with this woman, Melanie, and she absolutely just blows her own negative thoughts out of the water. It's so inspiring. Tears will come to your wow. eyes when you see it happening. I love it. I would love, I would love to see that. I would love if you, if you send, send your address, one. I'll just put one in the mail uh, for you. Wonderful. You know, and I have to share with you along those lines, Interestingly, probably about four years ago, four or five years ago now, my Aunt Sherry, without meaning to, was my greatest therapeutic moment in my own work. And oh, wow. Yes. So, and it actually, so it had to do with mislabeling. And I'm the oldest in my family, so I was always the very driven one and did my own thing and was a little bit of a rebel, I'd have to say. Good and, for you. <laughs> but I think I also, I, I mislabeled myself. I said, oh, I'm the black sheep. Oh, yeah, right. Right? So, yeah. so I'm the one who left Fort Collins and, you know, went out to art school in L.A. And, you know, this was in the 80s. I had black hair and I just thought oh, I wow. was, yeah. Sang, cool. sang in bands and just thought I was, you know, all that. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> but so, but was, but, but the negative you side wild of that, one, you. I tell you, <laughs> but you know, but the, but the interesting part of that, defining myself as the black sheep, I always felt a little outside of my family, yeah, even right. though they were very close and we had yeah. know, this wonderful family. And then when my parents divorced, actually, and, and this also led to the black sheep stereotype, you know, stereotype I put on myself. Uh, when my parents divorced, I moved out with my dad. And so I was super close with my mom's family. And I thought, oh, see, they've all, they're all mad at me. I'm, you know, mind reading them. Yeah, yeah. And, and then mislabeling myself, I really am the black sheep. Well, so four or five years ago, I'm sitting around this beautiful summer day, sitting back on the picnic table with my Aunt Sherry over at my mother's house. And I said to her, you know, I said, well... I just, I'm thankful for where things are at now. You know, here we are full circle all these years later and that I'm no longer the black sheep of the family. And she just looked at me and she said, well, you've never been the black sheep of the family. And I said, well, I thought everybody was mad at me when I moved out and moved with dad. She said, honey, everybody understood. Nobody was ever mad at you. You've never been the black sheep. You could do your own thing. You could go sing in L.A. You could do whatever you well, do. Yeah. And, and we've always just loved you just the same, just loved you to death. And it was a, a defining moment. I could no longer yeah. 
I could still hang on to my, you know, the, the good parts of being the rebel self and being driven and, and sure. doing those things. But I let go of there was some shame really attached to that. Oh, yeah. For me. And, and the sense of not belonging in the same way um, as maybe my brother did to my family. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it was so powerful. And like you're saying, it was an instant. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, usually when recovery happens, it's kind of an instantaneous thing in, in my in my practice. Uh, and I, I I have this idea, I, I almost call it a fractal therapy because I don't know if you're familiar with fractal geometry, but it's like a little formula that can be repeated. It's like a third grade level formula, but it can be repeated over and over on a computer and you can make these fantastic pictures with it. Like you could turn it into a beautiful multicolored parrot with one kind of formula and then you change it and it will become the coastline of the eastern United States or, or a countryside. And uh, it's a new form of mathematics, but it, it just, if you ha say turn it into a, a, a landscape, if you zero in on any tiny piece, a leaf or a trunk of a tree or a piece of dirt and go smaller and smaller, it will always look exactly the same at the, at the basis of mm. it. It's just the same thing over, over and over again. It's really weird. And that's how I think of uh, psychotherapy as, is, is that we, we, I can only help a person for one brief moment in their life, like a two or three second moment when they're upset. But in that moment, we'll understand everything because all their suffering is contained in that moment. And at the moment they recover, they'll understand the solution to, to all of their problems. And so that I see recovery as something that happens almost almost instantly. You have to build up to it. It takes about an hour and 30 minutes roughly for me to get to a patient to that level when that magical thing happens. But again, this is not the way I was trained to think about therapy when I was in my psychiatric residency training. It was this long thing that goes on for for years. I gave a presentation recently in San Francisco at a psychoanalytic conference. They wanted to have a token cognitive therapist there. And I was talking about how we're trying for this ultra fast recovery and seeing it now with most patients. And then they had a panel discussion and there was this famous woman psychoanalyst from San Francisco there and she has some kind of institute and she leaned over and whispered in my ear that most of her patients have been in therapy for more than 10 years now and two or three of them are just starting to make little baby steps forward. And she was saying that not to... Uh, to, 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 to brag in a way and, and to put me down, it's, it's kind of like I'm doing the pure gold and you're, you've got uh, fool's gold going here. Well, Is I, that interesting? It's so interesting. And, and I think it's, it's so exciting what, what you're doing right now. And I definitely I want to hear more about it. And maybe we can schedule a time again where we could just talk about the team approach and yeah because yeah there's a lot of cool vignettes and i could show you how it works and how you do this positive reframing and stuff i'd I, love I that i would love to do that because i maybe this could just be a two-part interview because there's so sure, we'll much feeling good part one feeling good part one and feeling good part two coming up and i just want to thank you so much dr burns for being here with me and what a delight you are a person i could sit and talk to all afternoon and evening and I just appreciate this opportunity so much. Thanks. It's been a real honor working with you. I'm very grateful. Thanks. Ain't nothing like the real 
there's so many times when we feel like life is out of our control and that we're not able to make any kind of change. It's easy to get caught into helplessness. It's easy to get caught into feeling like I'm going to be stuck in this place in my life forever. When we become aware of how we're thinking, there's so much power in that because so often we just go on automatic pilot and we're unconscious. So by starting to understand how our thoughts and even more importantly, our negative thinking, distorted thinking, our thinking errors are the things that keep us caught. They keep us in this false belief in ourselves. And so by identifying and understanding what it is we're thinking and how it affects us, we can start changing the way we think. We can realize that they're just thinking errors and we can take away their power by putting those thoughts to the test. When we're able to identify our thinking errors, we're really able to start changing the way we feel. And we can start changing then the way that we're acting. These are all interconnected. When we start realizing that if maybe I had said I'm a failure and I'm mislabeling myself and instead maybe I just failed at one endeavor, we can go back and say, you know what? The truth about me is I'm, I'm willing to get back up and I try hard. And when I start thinking about how actually I'm willing to try hard again, even if I made a mistake or even if I failed, I start getting in touch with my own resilience and that makes me feel empowered. And when I feel empowered, then my action is I'm going to get up. I'm going to get on the horse. I'm going to try again. And that is the power of being able to change our thoughts. My conversation with David Burns was the proof of how we can do this. We don't have to go to therapy to do it. We don't have to take a drug necessarily to feel better. We can do this work on our own by starting to identify what thoughts are getting in our way, what thoughts are the erroneous beliefs. Feeling good really comes down to choosing how we want to think about ourselves and realizing we actually have the power to change our thoughts. We don't have to be stuck just because we've thought something for so long that it's become a habit. We can enhance our lives, feel the way we want to feel, and then start living the kind of life that we truly want to live. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.
The Spark is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer, including titles that have been featured on this very program, such as Molly's Game by Molly Bloom and The Abundance Effect by Justin Morales. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners of The Spark, which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at thesparkpod.com audible.